Thank you, Edgewood, for some good singing this morning. It's a shame that I have to get up and preach now. Exodus 31, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Let me read and pray, and then we'll work our way through. Just to uh, try to orient you to what's in the passage here before we, uh, before we begin, uh, in Exodus 25 through 30, all of those chapters that we have covered over the last several weeks all pertain to instructions for the tabernacle that the people are to construct. So 25 through 30. So as a matter of fact, let's do this before we read. Turn back to chapter 25. And look at verses 8 and 9. So Moses has gone up on the, mount, on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. He's meeting with the Lord. And the Lord says to him in 25, 8 and 9, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. So we get to the end of chapter 30. All of the instructions have been given, the dimensions for the courtyard, for the tent, the material that's going to be used, the colors that are going to be used, the clothing for the priest. Now all that has to be done is to do it to build it, to make it. The dilemma with that, though, is that the only person who knows how this is supposed to be done is Moses. Moses alone is up on the mountain meeting with the Lord. The Lord is telling Moses alone how the tabernacle is supposed to work. And now Moses is supposed to go down and see to it that everything down to the smallest detail is done exactly as the Lord would have him do it. You ever done any home renovations before? You ever talked with a contractor? Or let's not even throw contractors under the bus. We may have some seated in here. <laughs> if you're married, have you ever spoken with your spouse about what's to be done in this renovation and you think that by talking back and forth you know what's going to be done, and then you come to find out that no matter how much talking you do about what's to be done, you are on vastly different ends of the spectrum as to what's to be happening. Okay, that's the dilemma here. How do we go from Moses receiving this revelation to that revelation being put into action correctly? Exodus 31, verse 1. I'm going to read the entire chapter which is 18 verses. Exodus 31, Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze, and in the cutting of stones for settings, and in the carving of wood, that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. And behold, 
I myself have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill, or you might could read that something like, in the hearts of all who are wise, I have put wisdom, the kind of wisdom that makes you skillful, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat upon it and all the furniture of the tent, the table also and its utensils and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering also with all its utensils and the laver and its stand, the woven garments as well and the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons which, uh, with which to carry on their priesthood the anointing oil also, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. They are to make them according to all that I have commanded you. Verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, but as for you, speak to the sons of Israel saying, you will surely observe my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to do it, the Sabbath through, or to do the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. When he had finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, do for us now what you did for your people then, which is to take your word given through your servants and to communicate it to the hearts and minds of your people so that we may do all that you have commanded us to do. And yet, Father, at the same time, while we want to, be, to obey your word as it's given to us, let us not lose sight of the fact that ultimately what sets us apart as your people is not our work, but your work on our behalf. Be with us now, we ask, for the sake of your Son and for the demonstration of the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our midst. Amen. So two things that we might want to look at here, and it breaks down pretty nicely in this passage. The, the first section, verses 1 through 11, deal with the work of the Spirit on behalf of the people. And then verses 12 through 17 deal with the Sabbath. So Spirit and Sabbath. All right, if you wanted to get beyond just the mere uh, key words or thematic words there, we're going to try to say it this way. The, the thrust, or what we might take away from the first section in verses 1 through 11, is observing, recognizing that God works through His people by His Spirit. God works through His people by His Spirit. And then second, 
coming on the heels of that instruction about the work that's to be accomplished, verses 12 through 17, a bit, sort of an odd passage that sort of seems to be a non sequitur. It sort of sticks out. We'll get to that later, of course. But in the passage on the Sabbath, we want to consider that God commands his people to rest in his work, not theirs. All right, so those, those two connecting ideas, that God works through his people by his spirit, and that God commands his people to rest in his work. So we've already said in 25 through 30 that everything that we have in those five chapters or so are God's instructions directly to Moses about the sanctuary or the tabernacle that's to be built so that the Lord himself would have a place where he is said to reside among his people. We get to the end of chapter 30, and now the only thing that's left to be done is to do it. This is what the Lord has said. These are the instructions. Go do it. Right? So when you get to chapter 31 then, and you're getting ready for the actual work on the tabernacle to begin, what you might expect to happen is something like a contrast between the Lord doing a lot of talking, a lot of speaking, a lot of instruction in 25 through 30, and then when we get to 31 through 40, the rest of the chapter, then it's all the people doing all their part. God's done his part, now the people do their part. Except that's not what you find. Look at the way this plays out. Start in verse 2. The Lord says, I have called by name Bezalel. I have chosen the man who's going to head this work up. That's God's action. Verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. He chooses the man that's going to head up the work, and he equips the man to do the work. And then you can skip down to verse 6. Behold, I myself. This is stressing the fact that this is God who is doing this. I myself have done this. I myself have appointed with him a holy ab. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put skill that they may make all that I have commanded you. For a section where the people are supposed to be doing all the work, God is still awfully active in all this, is he not? At what point do the people just get to do what they're supposed to do? When do they do the work on their own? The answer is never. There is never a point in time in this entire process when the people on their own do anything. That's not to say that they don't do things. They certainly do. They will work. They will cut wood. They will melt gold and silver. They will shape and fashion. They'll sew. They'll thread. They'll prop things up. They do work. But if that work is to account or amount to anything, 
that would be pleasing to the Lord, there is no chance that the Lord is going to leave them to their own devices to do, quote-unquote, the best that they can do. The best that they can do is not going to cut it. Not when God has said over and over again that this tabernacle is to be constructed exactly the way that I've told you to build it. So one of the things that we want to consider here is that what we see going on in Exodus 31 is not just unique to Exodus 31. This is the way that God works with his people. God commands his people, and then he gives them the ability to do what he's commanded. That's very freeing. This is the way it works all through Scripture in big and small ways. Right? Sometimes in the, in the most dramatic ways, we don't even consider that this principle is at work. So, for example, let me pick one out of the Old Testament and one out of the New Testament. All right? Working, out, working from the, the idea of Exodus 31, you could ask the question, who is going to do the work? And you could say, well, the people are going to do the work. That's true. How are they going to do the work? By God working through them to do the work. So, Old Testament, New Testament example, the same principle at work, just to show that this runs all the way through Scripture. Abraham and Sarah are told to have a son, said that they will have a son. Who conceives Isaac? Okay, thank yeah, good. Uh, man, if we've got to go back to biology 101, we're in trouble. We don't have the time. Okay, Sarah conceives. Who fathers the child? Abraham does. How does Abraham father the child and does Sarah conceive at their age and with a barren woman? God works through them to make their work effective. God commands and then gives them the ability to do what he has commanded them to do. The ultimate example, John 11. You know what's in John 11? Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. He commands a corpse to do something. Who walks out of the tomb? Lazarus does. How does he walk out of the tomb? The power of the Lord gives what he commands. This, this is all the way through Scripture. So that Paul can say in Philippians 2, for example, you, you, Christian, you work out your salvation in fear and trembling for, here's the reason why you work it out, why do you work out your salvation in fear and trembling? Because God's done his part and now you do yours? For God is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. 
There is nothing in our Christian life that originates with us, nothing. From beginning to end, everything is from him and through him and to him. And here we see it in a very practical way in Exodus 31. God is intending to bless his people by enabling them to create a sanctuary where he can visibly reside among them. And the only way that they are going to be able to enjoy that, as God intends for them to enjoy it, is if God gives them the ability to do what he's commanded them to do. Listen, young people especially, well, this is not young people. I'll, I'll speak to the young people for a little bit here, all right? And by young, what, what are we going to say young is? We'll say under 30. How about that, all right? Listen, this, this moment in time that, that we're a part of right now, right, the, the culture, society, and everything like that basically tells you that the commands that God gives his people in his word are at best outdated or are at worst impossible, right? You can't change who you are. You have to be true to yourself. All these other excuses about why what God has said to his people in his word are not to be carried out. Right, the Christian faith says that everyone that God calls to himself, everyone that has been called to Christ is made new in Christ. That what he commands his people to do, he gives them the ability to do. It does not matter whether it looks or sounds impossible. If God has commanded his people to do it, he will give them the ability to do it. If God has commanded you and me, if God has commanded us to live a certain way, he will give us the ability to live that way. More specifically, though, in terms of how God does this, look back at verse 2. Or I'm sorry, verse 3. So he's chosen the people that are going to do the work. He's given them the ability to do it. But, but notice more specifically, sort of boring in to the details a little bit. I have filled him, that is Bezalel and Aholiab and the others, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge. The primary means by which God gives his people the insight and the understanding to do the task that is set before them is by the gift of his Spirit.
What God does here in Exodus 31, he does in something of a small measured way. By that we mean he gives his spirit to this small limited group of people for a very specific, we might even say, time sensitive task. We don't really know what happens with the gift of the spirit after they're done constructing the tabernacle, but there really is, is not a reason to believe that there's a continual work that goes on. Uniquely, the Spirit is working in them for this task. What we see here in part, in shadow, is a preparatory work for what God is going to do, not with some of His people in the New Covenant, but with all of His people in the New Covenant. The greatest gift that God gives to his people because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gift of his spirit. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 9. As you're looking there, let me just remind you so that it's ringing in your ears what we're told in Exodus 31, 3. That the Spirit has come to fill the workers in wisdom, in understanding, and knowledge. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with what? With the knowledge of his will by all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are what these men receive in Exodus 31. What is Paul praying for the Colossian Christians that they would receive and know in Colossians 1.9? Knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Do you understand that what God is doing in Exodus 31, he has done for you if you are in Christ? He has given you his own spirit so that you can take his words, his revelation, his direction, his commands, and know how to do it. Don't miss the pattern, though. What, what lies at the foundation, even in Exodus 31, is the word of the Lord. The Lord gives his word of instruction to his people and then equips them by his spirit to carry that word out. In Colossians, in the New Testament, God has done the same thing. He has given us, first and foremost, his word, most explicitly in the living word, his son, but in the words of scriptures, he has given us his word and then equips us with His Spirit so that we can do the things that He has told us to do. 
At no point in your Christian life has he left you on your own to fend for yourself. I don't care how lonely it may feel or seem, how difficult the task may appear, how absurd or ridiculous this charge or this command or this pattern is that you are to uphold, God has not left you to do this on your own. He, by His Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ, resides in you to give you His wisdom, His knowledge, His understanding so that you can do what He has called you to do and do it in such a way that He finds pleasure in it. He does this for all of his people. If you are in Christ, you have no less of the Spirit than any pastor, priest, or pope has. It's all yours. If you are in Christ, Your access to the mind of God, to the will of God, through his word, by your spirit, is no less than any saint at any particular point in time in church history. And so we come again and we see in Exodus 31 that God will command what he will command And then because he is good and gracious, he will give what he commands. That is my only hope of pleasing him in this life. Tell me what you want me to do. Show me. But then don't stop there. Give me the ability and the understanding to be able to do it. And he does. He's that good. So that's the first part. That's 1 through 11. The clear indication that God is going to see to it himself that his will is accomplished because of what he's in, because what he has instructed his people to do, he will give them the ability to do. They'll do it. They'll do the work. But it's God who's working in them and through them to accomplish this task. Then you get down to verse 12, and you say, what in the world are we doing with the discussion on the Sabbath? Right? Doesn't it seem out of place? It's okay to admit that. It seems very odd to have a passage on the Sabbath here after you, in 25 through 31, all that you've been talking about is the Sabbath. Didn't we deal with the Sabbath in Exodus 20 with the Ten Commandments? You almost wonder, were they, did they have a little bit of room left at the end of that part of the scroll and they had to fill it with something, right? The kid with his 500-word essay, oh my goodness, I'm still 100 words short, what can I do? No, I think there's actually a connection here. Let me, let me give you 
at least one reason. We're not going to expound all of this right now because we're going to have to come back to it, but let me show you a, a unique feature with this discussion of the Sabbath. So you have it here in 31, 12 through 17. After all of the instructions about the tabernacle, it closes with a discussion on the Sabbath. Then you have in chapters 32 through 34 the golden calf episode, which is a dramatic, dangerous interruption to the flow of the storyline. When that problem, when that dilemma and that danger has been rectified and settled, and the people can go back to the business of making the tabernacle, that's where chapter 35 starts. Now they're going to get back in chapters 35 through 40 in doing what God has told them to do. Look at chapter 35. Then Moses assembled all the congregation of the sons of Israel and said to them, these are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Verse 2, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. So the tabernacle instructions end with a statement about the Sabbath, and then before the tabernacle work is to start, it's prefaced by a statement on the Sabbath. That seems like it more than coincidence. This seems intentional, the mention of the Sabbath in that book-ended sort of way. What's the point? The point seems to be that God wants to remind His people and make sure they know in Exodus 31, I think there, there might be another feature or two in Exodus 35. We'll get there when we get there. But in Exodus 31, what God is attempting to communicate to his people is simply this. What makes God's people God's people is God. That's deep, I know. So let me repeat it. What makes God's people Truly, God's people is God. Let me show you how this works out. Turn back just a page or two to Exodus 29. All the way down towards the end of the chapter at verse 45, verses 45 and 46. After saying that the Lord will consecrate the tent of meeting by His presence, we read in 45 and 46, I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They will know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. What is the purpose of the tabernacle in Exodus 29? It's not the tabernacle per se that makes Israel special. 
All kinds of people have tabernacles and temples bigger and better than what Israel is going to be making in the desert. The tabernacle doesn't make Israel special. God makes Israel special. This thing that they're going to make, albeit at the Lord's direction and command, for their blessing, for their good, that labor that they're going to put forth to do that in obedience to the Lord, when everything is said and done and the tabernacle is constructed and it's upright and operational and people are moving in and out and business with God is being done there, even then it's not the tabernacle that makes them special. What makes them special, what makes them truly God's people is that God is with them. And God could be anywhere. He met Moses in a bush. He doesn't need a tent. He gives a tent for their blessing. But the tent is not the gift. The tent doesn't separate them and make them distinct. God does that. So you come back to Exodus 31, and it seems like what God is wanting his people to understand is, yes, in all of this, you are going to be doing this labor of the tabernacle, this work, obediently as an act of worship, as an act of service to me, but understand your work, even at its best, even when it is fueled and enabled by nothing less than my own spirit dwelling within you, your work only goes so far. Even the tabernacle work, as important as what it is, is going to stop on the Sabbath day. Therefore, it can't be that the tabernacle is really what is the ultimate issue or what is of first importance. If the tabernacle was of first importance, what they were doing, they wouldn't stop. They'd work right through until they were finished. But no, every Sabbath, whether you're done with the tabernacle or not, you stop and you don't do any work. Why? So that you can be reminded on a regular, rhythmic way that I make you my people, you do not make yourself my people. I do that. I sanctify you. I set you apart. I enable you to work. I enable you to, to obey. I enable you to look odd and different and distinct from all the other people and all the other nations around you. But listen, even then, when you're doing all of these things by my spirit, even then, it's me that really makes the difference. Have you ever stopped to ask yourself the question, what makes me one of God's people? If someone were to ask you that and you were to have to give an answer, how would you answer that question? If you were to start to answer that question by saying something like, I am one of God's people because I... You've probably already gotten off on the wrong foot. 
But if someone were to ask you, how do you know that you are one of God's people? And you answer that question, I know that I am one of God's people because he has, now you're on the right track. Husbands and wives, what makes your marriage holy in the eyes of the Lord is first and foremost not how smooth your marriage is. It's whether or not God is in your marriage. Parents, what sets apart your parenting with your children what makes it look like godly parenting, or, I'm sorry, what God does in receiving that parenting that you do has nothing to do with your success as a parent. It doesn't even ultimately have anything to do with whether or not your parenting sticks with your kids. What makes for Christian parenting is parenting in the Lord. Come what may. Edgewood Baptist member, what makes you one of God's people is first and foremost not the fact that your name is on the membership role here at Edgewood. What makes you one of God's people is the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to you and dwells within you in the same way that God will dwell among his people in the tabernacle tent. And if you don't have possession of the Spirit, if you don't have God, you're not one of his people. The other thing that, that comes on the heels of this We've had the, the Sabbath command given in the Ten Commandments. But the other thing that comes in here in this closing section of chapter 31 is that the Lord says very clearly in verse 14 that everyone who profanes or who turns away or who breaks the Sabbath will be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person will be cut off from among his people. Outside of rest is death. If you do not know what it means to rest in God's work through his son Christ by the power of his spirit in your life. You need to wrestle with that question. Because all who belong to the Lord are given rest. An unwillingness to rest in the Lord 
is a sign or an indication that you may not be one of God's people. So that here in Exodus 31, Sabbath rest is so important and so central. It is the sign of the covenant that all the people will observe together. This is something that not one or a select few do. This is just what God's people do. They rest in the Lord together. I don't want to draw a straight line and equate the Sabbath commands in the Old Testament with what we do on Sundays, but there are some striking parallels between the two. So that if the Lord commands his people to rest together every Sabbath day, and if he tells his new covenant people that they ought to be gathering together regularly, what does it suggest if one of his professing people never gathers with the rest of the family? If God says that you are to rest together as my people, and here's how you are to rest, hearing my word, singing to one another, observing the ordinances, and we never gather to do that, what does that suggest? Listen, I understand that this is, right, of course a, a, a pastor is going to say these things. You ought to be at church on Sunday, right? That's just what pastors do. That's their job. Well, you don't understand, Merritt. It's different for you. The rest of us, there are other factors that, have, that come into play. It's a little bit harder for us to get worked up and excited about coming. We have to listen to you every Sunday right? Okay, fine. I get that. All right, but here's the thing. The command to obey this Sabbath regulation is just a flat objective command. It isn't based on whether or not the people feel like they need to rest or whether or not they even recognize their need to rest. They rest. To say that I don't need to do that, what God has commanded me to do, is to say that I know better than God. I know what's best for me. I know what's going to give me joy. I know what's going to satisfy me. I know what's going to provide for me. So let me encourage you this way. I'm not meaning for this to be in any way you know, a, a condemning sort of a thing, but the reality that we all can wake up on a Sunday morning and just not feel like getting out of bed, not feel like coming and gathering together as the people of God, recognizing that we're distinct and set apart from everything else that happens out there during this time together. I, I know that you don't always feel like coming and getting out of bed. At the very least though, here's, a, here's one way that you can approach that. You hear the word of the Lord commanding you to come and you obey. And then you say, 
you confess even as you're coming, which may be in the car, it may be as you're wrestling the kids, it may be as you're sitting here right at this moment, you obey and then you confess, Father, I'm obeying, but my heart is not where it ought to be. I ought to want to be here. I ought to want to hear your word. I ought to want to rest in you, and my heart just does not seem to want to do that. Help my heart catch up to the external act. You have told me to do this. I'll do it, but you give me what I don't have. That's Exodus 31. So my prayer for us is that as we continue to go through the Christian life, that we see something of this Exodus 31 dynamic at play in everything that we do, not just here on a weekly basis on Sunday mornings, but even as we go out, as we go back home, as we go to the workplace, uh, in school, anything like that, that we recognize that God is doing his work in us and through us so that we can be obedient in a way that pleases him so that we recognize that what marks us off as God's people is not anything that we do for him, but everything about what he does for us, and that we find rest coming to our souls, recognizing that he does this, not us. It's not my responsibility or burden. Let's pray. Take just a few moments to reflect on God's word in silence. Father, all things truly are from you and through you and to you. Remind us of that as we seek to obey so that we would not become prideful when we carry out one of your commands. Help us not to be despondent when we fail to obey, but to continue whether on our best days or our worst days, to continue to turn our eyes to you, to find that you are the one who commands whatever you will and who gives what you command. Help us to find our rest in you, to know that our hearts are restless until we come and we sit at your feet. Help us to meditate on your beauty and on your word. Help us to find our joy and our satisfaction in what you have given us by the work of your Holy Spirit that imparts all of this to us. Do that, Father, we ask here at Edgewood in a way that we would truly be distinct from the world around us, not just when we gather together on Sunday mornings to enjoy and to confess the rest that is given to us in Christ as your people, but help us to look differently as we continue to work out our salvation outside of these walls. When that happens, we will give you the praise and the glory because we know that it's you who are at work within us to work and to will for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen.